Hormone replacement therapy is one of the most divisive and emotional issues in medicine. To use it or not to use it? When? Why? How long? What kind? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Robert Green. Dr. Green is an assistant clinical professor at UC Davis Medical School. He recently merged his ob practice with the Share Institute for Reproductive Medicine. Dr. Green has published numerous articles in the medical literature and has recently finished his fourth consumer health book. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much. How are you doing today, Leslie? I'm great. Thanks so much for being on the show, Robert. Obviously, the Women's Health Initiative study brought the whole issue of hormone replacement therapy into the living rooms of everyone during the summer of 2002. And you have written extensively on the need for hormone balance. Um, Please tell us how you decide whether or not to start hormonal therapy in your patients. Two simple words, Leslie. Symptoms matter. One of the things that's most important in understanding neuroendocrinology or the emerging field of hormones and how they affect brain development and brain aging is really understanding how hormonal imbalances trigger symptoms. And very often we're really confused by epidemiologic studies. You know, the Women's Health Initiative was a very large epidemiologic study that actually sought out and recruited asymptomatic women and used that as the basis for trying to decide who was going to be randomly assigned to take hormones or not. What we understand today is that symptoms are really our best way of identifying who is most likely to benefit from correcting a hormonal deficiency. It makes sense. Isn't it hard to imagine that it's been five years since the WHI was released? It really is. And I think the thing that's most tragic, again, most of my research has been devoted towards looking at how hormones affect the brain. And the biggest tragedy I found is that The neurology and the neuroendocrine community was predicting that the WHI study was going to fail to find any neurologic benefits because of the fact they were recruiting asymptomatic patients. But certainly one of the long-lasting consequences of WHI is that it scared everybody, certainly patients and, and I think many physicians as well. So how do you alleviate the fear that women so often have about taking hormones? Well, first of all, it's all about individualizing treatment. You know, one of the things I point out to people all the time is the WHI study was designed in an era when we thought all estrogens were the same. Since that time, we've identified there are at least two different estrogen receptors, and now there's evidence there's possibly a third. There's at least 50 different modulators that affect how a hormone receptor is going to impact within the cell. And most importantly is that you cannot classify all estrogens the same Yet that's exactly what's been done with the WHI study. Imagine if we discovered one antibiotic caused a problem, and all of a sudden all antibiotics were banned or had the same classification ruling on them. That's basically what's happened with estrogen-containing products. Mm -hmm. But do you think most physicians understand that? Unfortunately, they don't. You know, what really has happened is the way the WHI study was reported is literally unprecedented. Instead of going through the standard procedures of having research presented in an academic setting like a medical conference where we could debate it and then actually screen it and and analyze it before it was published, what was happening is the WHI study was launched through a press conference, and literally the raw data wasn't even made available for analysis until six weeks later. So what happens is they made splashing headlines by having this press conference, and there was not even an, an opportunity for an intelligent rebuttal until 
the media moved on and was talking about uh, Britney Spears or something else important (laughs) that week. Exactly. Which are the target symptoms that are most responsive to hormonal therapy? The most frequently cited symptoms are those of hot flashes and night sweats, but it goes well beyond that. We know that hormonal deficiencies, particularly the deficiency of menopausal hormones, can affect mood, can affect memory and cognitive functioning, can even affect balance and coordination. So how do you decide which estrogen product to use with all of these choices? Well, first of all, I'm a big advocate of bioidentical hormones. And you know, the, another sad truth is that this is a term that's been popular in endocrinology for nearly a decade, and it's always been applied towards replacing the same hormone the body produces, which is really the gold standard in endocrinology. It's a term that the medical community is allowed to be hijacked you know, over the last four or five years by people wanting to sell different supplements and compounded products. But what we understand today is that estradiol, for instance, 17-beta-estradiol, the primary estrogen produced by the healthy ovary, has over 300 functions in the brain alone. So any other product, whether it's a conjugated estrogen or ethanyl estradiol or, or even, you know, like estrone or estriol, we know is going to have some fraction of those 300 functions. And for that reason alone, I would much rather give that estrogen that we know the body uses rather than something else that we hope is as good as what the body normally makes. So when you say bioidentical hormones, you're meaning 17-beta estradiol. Exactly. And, you know, again, I compare it to the fact that once we were able to produce thyroxine, people stopped prescribing pig thyroid. Once we were able to produce human insulin, we stopped, you know, prescribing cow or, or pig insulin. Once we were able to produce human growth hormone, we stopped producing bovine growth hormone. The same thing should be true with estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone as well, is that when a patient needs one of those hormones, now that we have the ability to give back what the body naturally makes, it absolutely makes the most sense, and we're finding out is even a much safer way to replace hormones. If you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Robert Green. We are discussing how hormonal fluctuations often explain our patients' complaints. You know, one of the things I hear about bioavailable or bioidentical hormones, I should say, is that there's no oversight, that the FDA doesn't control these manufacturers, there's no regulation, there's a lack of safety. Um, Do you feel that that's true? Yeah, but this is also, again, a miscommunication. I've had the the pleasure earlier this year uh, serving as a scientific advisor for the U.S. Senate Committee on Healthy Aging. What's happened is because a lot of the medical profession just really felt alienated from this term bioidentical as it gained popularity, what happened is the term that was, as I mentioned earlier, somewhat hijacked by the compounding pharmacies. It's true that compounding pharmacies have a tremendous amount of variation. Some of them produce quality products and many of them don't. But ironically, there are FDA-approved bioidentical products. For instance, when we talk about estradiol 17-beta, there are at least nine FDA-approved products that are available on the market today that any physician could prescribe without using a compounding pharmacy. Ah, can you run through that list for us, please? Oh, sure. You know, things like, you know, the old standard is, is a product called Estrace that everybody's familiar with, but there are patches today like the Vivel patch and the Chimera patch. There's different gels, like, for instance, a product called Estrogel and another 
one called Diva Gel, and a new one that's called Elastrin. And there's even a lotion now that's called Estrasorb. Believe it or not, there's another company that's got a product in development that we're referring to as the Patchless Patch because it's a spray-on patch that basically is like the liquid bandage. So it'll be absorbed through the skin. There's an ever-expanding way of administering bioidentical 17-beta-estradiol. And most importantly, what the research is showing is that when these hormones are absorbed transdermally, it lacks all of the risk that's associated with orally administered estrogens. That when it's not swallowed, all the safety goes up tremendously and the risk goes down dramatically. So bioidentical hormones, it sounds like we need a better word than that, first of all, since there are so many misconceptions. Is there another way to, to call these things? So it's a very fine word because it's one that has an intuitive definition. What I think we need to do more effectively as a medical community is embrace the term and use it as a term that we could talk to with our patients because, you know, it's really interesting. The endocrine society, the medical endocrinologists, actually even came out with a patient uh, advocacy brochure over a year ago that explains what a bioidentical hormone is. It's a term that I particularly like because what I always say is that if we're going to call one thing a bioidentical hormone, we have to have name for the other hormones. For instance, in my classification system, or the terminology I like to use, I'll call, for instance, a conjugated estrogen a biosimilar hormone because it's not identical, but it's very similar. Whereas the selective estrogen receptor modulators, I call those a biolimited hormone because they have limited activity. They're active in one part of the body, but not in another. And the newer antagonist medications, I just call those bioantagonists. So to me, it's an intuitive classification system that really lends itself to easy conversation, whether we're talking across specialties or whether we're talking to our patients. Makes sense. Now, so uh, from what you're saying as well, the route of administration definitely matters. Absolutely. You know, one of the important things we understand is even if you take a bioidentical hormone like 17-beta-estradiol and you swallow it in a pill form, you're only going to absorb about 40% of what you're taking. And ironically, in the process of absorption, you're going to stimulate the liver to make coagulation proteins and various other chemicals it could easily tip someone into a higher risk category, whereas when it's absorbed transdermally, you bypass that liver effect and you don't have any of the increase in risk that's been associated. This was actually a key function of a major paper that came out earlier this year amongst the cardiology community that was accompanied by an editorial from the National Institute of Health. Is there ever a reason to use the oral preparations? Well, in my opinion, there's very, very limited reason. I don't see any compelling reason to use an orally administered. You know, it used to be that we'd often have patients that would react to the patch, and so we wouldn't end up being able to give a patch to everybody. But as I mentioned, now we've got gels and lotions, and we've even got vaginal rings that could administer without that first pass effect through the liver. It's especially nice for people that are on multiple medication regimens because by bypassing the liver, you also don't have that same uh, effect where estrogen can affect the way other medications are absorbed or processed. How do you decide which product to start with in any given patient? It's a beautiful question. What I do is I talk about it with the patient. I explain to them that they're equivalent products and that I would adjust the dose until their symptoms are relieved. And I ask them what would be most, most convenient. Would they rather try with a patch or try with a gel or a lotion? And I take it from there. One of the difficult things that, that we all struggle with is a patient that has mood disorder symptoms 
and may need hormone balance as well. How do you know when to start with hormones versus an antidepressant? Well, in my opinion, it's always best to start with a hormone in a patient that's hormonally deficient. And out of absolute respect to the psychiatric community, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I am someone that's been very well-schooled in neuroendocrinology. And if we see that based on the timing of someone's symptoms, that their symptoms either were exacerbated or have an onset that's associated with a hormonal shift, that I would try to correct that hormonal shift as a first way of trying to help restore normalcy. So whether we're dealing with postpartum depression or perimenopausal anxiety or depression, that very often replacing that hormone is going to be a great step towards dealing with the underlying mood disorder. Makes sense to me. I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Robert Green. We have been discussing the use of hormonal therapy. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening. 